No, you don't have to. I just always wait for the noise if you're going to. That's all. I just wait for the noise. Okay. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and I'm here to answer all of your mental health questions. Now, if you don't know, I collect these questions over on the community tab of my YouTube channel. And it's the YouTube channel where I host my podcast. That channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. And in the community tab of that podcast or of that channel, I ask for them on Sundays. And I kind of change the time around because I know that people are in different time zones. So maybe turn on your notifications so that you know when I've posted and then you can ask your question. Without further ado, let's jump into the first question today. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. Why is it that my body reacts as a way as if I'm feeling a certain emotion, but my brain doesn't necessarily, quote unquote, feel the emotion? My body will physically react as if there was a certain emotion, but I don't feel the emotion. To expand on this a little, when I was in high school, I felt my anxiety in my head where my thoughts would be running. But ever since I moved to college, my experiences with anxiety have been very different. My racing thoughts and stress don't feel as present in my brain. And logically, I understand my worries aren't as big as they seem. Yet my body has reacted with the worst panic attacks, giving me shortness of breath, racing heart, awful stomach aches, and the list just goes on. Also, every single time my parents have dropped me off at campus, I don't necessarily feel sad, but my body will start to form tears and I cry every time they leave. Specifically, this leaves me feeling like a child again. And I thought this was interesting because my body reacted the same way as a child when my parents would leave for work. Interesting. I thought this could be related to attachment, but since I'm older now, I thought I would have outgrown this. We don't outgrow it, unfortunately. Though these are two different situations, I both I noticed with both instances that my body is having the reaction that I don't quote unquote feel in my brain. I'm not sure if I've gotten so used to these emotions that I don't feel them anymore, or maybe I'm unintentionally stuffing the feelings down to where I'm tricking my brain into thinking that I'm not feeling a certain emotion when I actually am. Or maybe the way I experience certain emotions has changed. I'm not really sure, and I hope that this question makes sense, as articulating these experiences can be difficult. I know it can be tricky. Thank you so much for your videos and podcast. I always look forward to learning from your content. Of course, I'm so glad it's helpful. Now, this is an interesting and great question. And the truth is, well, okay, so there's a lot of questions within this question. But overall, know that the entire experience of living life, emotions, thoughts, vulnerabilities, uh, memories, is felt both in our mind and in our bodies, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Now, the most common I would argue within, especially within like uh, my eating disorder patients, because that's what I specialize in, right, in my practice, but in our community in general, I think it's way more common for the opposite, where we don't feel it in our bodies, yet we know something's happening, right? We like feel it in our brain, but it doesn't really matter. It just tells us where the disconnect is. Because if we are experiencing something, somewhere in our body-brain connection is going to show it. Meaning, we cannot just stuff everything down and pretend we're okay. Our body will force us to experience it, whether we want to or not. And if we 
it is kind of better if we choose to do it. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, it's going to do it at a time when you don't want it to, right? Well, that's why, like uh, back in the day, for instance, personally, I had a lot, my dad was really sick and I think he just passed away. And so it was like, he got really sick. I thought he was going to die. Then he ended up dying. I was, I was like trying to cope with it all and like kind of stuffing it down. But also I was in therapy twice a week, but it was a lot. And all of my like anger and like sadness and just the complicated grief feeling that I like couldn't express all the time because I needed to like get on with my life, right? I had like grad school and, uh, you know, responsibilities. I had a, a internship. So I had like patients that were counting on me. Long story short, because I wasn't giving myself the time I needed, uh, I would have a couple drinks with friends and start crying at a bar. <laughs> Not really what I wanted to do, right? Because my brain and body were going to express that whether I wanted them to or was ready for them to or not. And so anyways, that's my personal experience. And in our community, I hear a lot about not knowing that something's happening in our body, like being disconnected. And I don't really think your experience is any different because it's still that disconnection, right? You're just experiencing the flip-flop of that, meaning that you're not uh, experiencing it in your brain. You're not cognizant of what you're actually thinking and feeling about something. Instead, your body is expressing it for you. So either way, there's this disconnection. And that disconnection can happen for a lot of reasons. Now, I'll get into the attachment stuff in just a minute. I kind of want to keep that separate, even though obviously it's linked. Um, But one of the main reasons for disconnection between body and brain, even though just FYI, they are inextricably linked, even if we want to deny it, still exists. But one of the main reasons for that disconnection is is usually abuse. Now, it's not all the time. I'm just saying most of the time it tends to go back to some abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, emotional, any type of abuse. Remember, neglect is abuse as well. So because things can be like, let's say it's emotional abuse, right? So our parent or caregiver yells horrible things at us. And so that taking that in and in hearing that um, can be difficult for us to acknowledge so we can like shut it down in our brain, yet we experience it in our bodies or vice versa, right? Let's say we experience like we feel the pain of it or we feel really lethargic or tired um, and we, you know, we, we shut it down in our brain or we think about it, hear all those things, ruminate on the things they've said and can't feel our bodies. Maybe Maybe we do struggle with an eating disorder or self-injury. A lot of my patients who self-injure will say that it's a way to like bring feeling back you know, it's like a way to feel physically the pain that we're emotionally experiencing. So anyways, I find the most common disconnect is trauma. Now that's not always the case and let's get into attachment. And I also want people to know that an attachment wound is a trauma. And what I mean by an attachment wound is when when our caregiver, our primary caregiver, which is usually our mother or father, but it can be any number of people, but when our primary caregiver isn't reliable, meaning they don't come when we cry. We don't think, or they're just, maybe they do, but not always. They're not consistent with their support. And we end up with anxious attachment, anxious avoidant, right? Uh, Disorganized attachment. When we have a unhealthy attachment due to this, that is a trauma and can lead to this disconnect. And the reason for that is that inconsistency with our caregiver can lead us to think, Like, just imagine you're a child, you have little to no resources, you depend on other people for your survival. Just have to think about that, right? It's something we often overlook as adults. Consider you at that little age, not knowing if the person that you cry for is going to come. 
if they're going to feed you, if they're going to change you, if they're going to like support you, like, like loving on you, that emotional support is really important too. So if we don't feel like we can count on them, we can start to think without even realizing it, because we're obviously too small to even have, you know, this kind of organized thought. We can start to assume that we're too much, that no one loves us, that our, you know, the needs we have are like made up, right? We're like making it into more. You can see how these like firmly held false beliefs about ourselves can start from a very young age and that inconsistency leading to unhealthy attachment can cause that as well. And also just want to throw it out there that a helicopter parent, a parent that doesn't allow for any independence can be harmful as well. Meaning that if a parent doesn't allow for us to make any choices or decisions on our own as we're growing up, we can start to question our own ability to do so. It can cause very high anxiety. We can be overly attached to our caregiver, our parent, because we depend on them for everything because we've never been given an option to you know, make choices on our own. So anyway, I want to talk about all of that because I feel like that might be what's happening here and why we had the flip-flop. Because again, the disconnect comes from the same place. You've just swapped from where you're experiencing it, whether it's in your body or your brain. Because you're saying in high school, you used to like be able to recognize it was happening and think about it. But in college now, it's just in your body, not just in your head. And so I want to look and make sure I answer this specific question. It says, um, I'm not sure if I've gotten so used to these emotions that I don't feel them anymore. That's not it. Or maybe I'm unintentionally stuffing the feeling down to where I'm tricking my brain into thinking that I'm not feeling a certain emotion when I actually am. Or maybe the way I experience certain emotions has changed. I think your, your coping has changed. It's not that the emotions have changed or the way that you feel them. It's not that, you know, um, all of a sudden, like, it's a more physical manifestation. It's just the fact that I think you are unintentionally stuffing them down. It's just the coping used to probably be keep yourself out of your body, where now the coping is keep you out of your head. And I'd assume my, my hypothesis would be that because we did it the other way first, that that got overwhelming and we still felt like that ick of emotions when we don't want to experience them, right? Or that attachment, we felt that. Ugh. And so we flip flop back into a different, to get it out of our head and put it in our bodies. So like maybe this will be more tolerable, but either way, what this is telling me, and since you are in college, see if you can access some free mental health care. That's, I got therapy through my college throughout, I think I was in school for six years. So probably five of those years, I accessed the free therapy, Best decision I ever made. I'd encourage you to do the same because I really would like you to dig into that attachment and see if there's a wound there growing up and work on some of, I know mindfulness has gotten like a bad rep or it's just an overused term, but really I use that term to talk about the reconnection of brain and body and bringing them together and acknowledging how they work together, right? How they actually aren't separated and why we're forcing that separation. And, you know, being a detective about why we think we've done it and what it is we're trying to hide from ourselves and where our anxiety really comes from. I think all of that could be incredibly healing and helpful for you to work through with a therapist. Now, there was a comment on or two or three comments, it looks like on this. It says, moreover, can you explain how emotion regulation works? Of course, as it is a very important aspect of eating disorders. Okay. Now, um, emotion regulation sounds like, I don't know, like I'm a police officer coming into a, a big party filled with emotions. And I'm like, no, you get in this line, you get in, you know, like 
organizing, regulating. It feels very, I don't know, overbearing to me. I don't know why, but that term sounds like that. But what emotion regulation really is, is becoming friends with our emotions. And I know that sounds really woo-woo, but what I actually mean by that is being able to acknowledge a key component before we get into emotion regulation skills within dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which is where this kind of tool or therapeutic technique lies. It's in that style of therapy. It comes after mindfulness. Again, going back to starting to pay attention to our first thoughts, our first bodily experiences when we feel a certain kind of way. Meaning if I get excited, what do I think first? What is it that happens? Do I get goosebumps? Do I get, you know, uh, is my stomach doing flips? Is, is my breath shortened? When I get angry, do my fists clench? Do I clench my teeth? Do I have like, you know, laser-like focus on the thing I'm upset about? Like how, what happens, right? And so becoming more aware is important. That mindfulness component is important first because then the second and this huge part of emotion regulation is deciding, and that's an important word, deciding how we want to respond. That is very different from me reacting to something. Reaction takes no thought and very honestly, usually little effort and can do a lot of damage in our life because it's essentially us unfiltered in a way that could be harmful, right? It's like if we said everything that came to our mind in our life, we'd probably have no friends and be really rude to people, you know, especially if we're having a bad day, right? We can just be really harsh for no real reason. It's important that we recognize what's happening. Okay, I'm starting to feel a little angry. Hmm. I don't want to lash out at my coworker because that's not going to make things better. Or I don't want to yell at my partner or spouse because that's just going to start a fight and I don't want to be in it. Maybe I can just tell them I just need to step away for a minute. I'm having a tough time. Okay, right. So it's making that choice. And that's how emotion regulation works. It's not about uh, not having emotions or only allowing certain ones. It's more about understanding the story of an emotion, like where does it start? How do I feel? And how does it build into what has been in the past, usually like a reaction? And what can I do instead to respond? And that that's like, it takes practice. And it applies um, to eating disorders a lot because eating disorders in general um, are a coping skill, a way for us to numb out or focus on something else instead of the thing that's upsetting us. And usually almost all of my eating disorder patients are completely disconnected from their body, right? They just, their brain makes the decisions for them. They don't listen to their body. So hunger, fullness cues are cut off, aches and pains cut off. Um, you know, we just kind of stuff everything down and numb out by focusing on food, either overeating, undereating. It doesn't really matter. It's all the same. Um, and this emotion regulation is important because we don't, it, with eating disorders, it's part of your recovery process because you have to get back in touch with your body. And we also have to get back in touch with our emotions because we've been numbing out with the eating disorder. Okay. Now there was another comment that as an add-on, how do I know if I'm emotionally numb or just not acknowledging my emotions? I feel so numb and sometimes my anxiety will spike and I'll have this physical symptoms of a panic attack like the previous comment mentioned. I can't tell if I'm just saying I'm numb so that I don't have to dig into how I feel or if I actually just feel nothing. Where does this numbness come from? It makes it so difficult for me to tap into my emotions in therapy. I hate to tell you, but emotionally numb and not acknowledging are pretty much the same thing. It's just a different word for the same thing. Emotionally numb, I guess I could argue, would be 
like maybe an extreme or a more severe disconnection where we actually don't think there are any emotions there. Uh, Spoilers, we almost always are feeling something. I forget, there's a a study, this is like eons ago. I feel like it was like 15 years ago when I was in college or something. But anyway, um, there's a certain amount that they say a person feels every day. It's like a hundred or something. It's a lot. Anyway, so just because you don't acknowledge that they're there or don't realize they're there, doesn't mean they're not. It it really just means that we're kind of like asleep at the wheel or we're purposely putting on blinders to our emotions. And so I would, I believe that you probably like, it's it's the same, but we could just say you're, you're doing both. You are emotionally numb and you're not acknowledging them. And that that's why the numbness has come to be. And so it might be beneficial for you. If it's hard for you to tap, it depends on how, how, like difficult it is. If you could acknowledge one emotion every day, that's a great place to start. And then start trying to talk about how that emotion feels in your body. That's usually how I have my patients start. But if we feel like we don't experience anything, then instead I might have you tell me about your bodily experience. So do you have any aches? Can you feel, I do some grounding techniques too, just to make sure you're in your body because that numbness can also come from dissociation. Um, there's a lot of different tricks and tips. I guess it just depends on how how difficult it is for you to acknowledge any emotions. And I might have you look back on something. Sometimes looking things, um, looking at things that have already happened can be a little bit easier in the tapping into emotions because we can sometimes acknowledge it when we're not experiencing it. I would try different things to see how we could get in, but those are just a couple ideas to get you started, hopefully in your own therapeutic process. Now there was another one. It said follow-up. How do you handle when you are constantly feeling touch that feeds into anxiety? It gets so bad that I don't want to feel anymore because it's overwhelming. I think part of it, okay, so touch can be triggering and overwhelming for a lot of people, especially people with trauma in their past or uh, anybody on the autism spectrum, anyone with ASD or autistic folks out there. We can be very sensitive to touch. Not everybody, but sometimes, right? Um, So there can be a lot of different reasons. And it sounds like for you, people are touching you too much and it's causing you a lot of anxiety. And I would encourage you to speak up about your boundaries and place talk to people and say, you know, um, I don't know, it depends on who they are, but let's say it's a colleague and they just keep touching you and it keeps overwhelming you. First, I might just try to like remove myself or be distanced enough that they can't touch me. And if they do, you could say something like, hey, do you mind not um, always putting your hand around my shoulders? I I had a bad experience years ago and I just find it like off-putting. I know it's not you, it's me, um, but just you know, if you could just lay off that for a bit, that'd be really helpful. You know, lean into the compassion and saying, it's not you, it's me. It's a past experience. I, I find myself, you know, shocked every time you do it, or I know it's done out of care, but I, I, you know, it's, it's anxiety provoking. If it's a partner, then we need to be able to communicate. Otherwise we're not really in a real relationship. I know people go in relationships, go, um, or in relation, not go in, are in relationships for years without feeling safe to communicate about things. But I'm here to tell you, if you don't feel safe to communicate your needs and your wants, things you like and don't like, it's never going to get better. And it can honestly, I've had uh, actually friends of mine be in marriages where they could never tell their partner that like sex was painful or they didn't like that they touched their ears. It just really uncomfortable for them. And they would deal with it forever. And then there was this re- built up resentment. And I'm, 
I mean, I'm not saying it always ends the relationship, but it doesn't, it's been very difficult um, for people. And so the sooner we can learn how to communicate our needs, the better just in general. Um, So yeah, boundaries, communication will help with that. And then also you can work in therapy, whatever cause, if you think yours is like trauma caused, or if it's anxiety caused, like whatever you think the reason behind it is, even if you're not sure, therapy can help you process that so that we aren't so hypervigilant. So that amount of touch doesn't cause us so much anxiety. You know what I mean? And now the final add-on says, I've been noticing this also. I do think for me, it is that I'm stuffing my emotions without realizing it because that's just my go-to thing. So my add-on is, how do I get to where I even notice that I'm stuffing emotions when the only time I realize it is in retrospect? The best, okay, this is actually great that you realize it after the fact. I know you thought that was frustrating and we'd love it to be in the moment. We'll take what we can get, right? So you do notice and you are able to look back and be like, fuck, I guess I was feeling, you know, X, Y, or Z. Do your homework on the past experiences. Try to dig into, if you can, like maybe you have to close your eyes. Imagine you're back at that time. How did this feel? Where did I feel this in my body? What was going on? Take some time to see if you can figure out the, I don't know, symptoms or signs of certain emotions after the fact. Like what what did you experience then? What did you feel? Did you notice your fist clenching before you yelled at that person or your teeth gritting? Or did you find yourself like just, uh, you know, really hypervigilant or really anxious or what was going on, right? Taking time to look back and use those past experiences as key learnings can help us get better in the moment now. Meaning that as we get better at acknowledging, hey, I think I kind of had like a stomach ache feeling before I lashed out. Maybe I feel like a cramp when I'm angry or when I'm overwhelmed. You know, I did find myself, um, you know, feeling like I wanted to leave. Like I just wanted to get up so bad. I was so uncomfortable being stuck there. You know, start looking into it and considering what you felt in your body, thoughts you had, urges you had. Urges tell us a lot. Um, Like for instance, whenever you feel like, I just want to get out of here. Oh my God, it's so uncomfortable. I just don't want to be here. That's a good indicator that either a boundary has been crossed, you're spending time around a toxic person, this relationship is hurtful for you, uh, the situation is overwhelming to your system, it could lead to dissociation and all sorts of things. And so looking back and you know taking that into consideration, I think can really be helpful. And that's where I would start because then we'll get to know, oh, like for instance, a way that I learned in therapy that I was stuffing my, not mine wasn't so much my emotions, it was my needs. I didn't feel safe to communicate my needs for many, many years. I would swallow really deeply, which is what my yoga teacher thinks is why I used to get strep throat all the time because my like, uh, my chakra, there's a chakra in your throat. I forget which one. And I'm probably, you know, it's very woo woo. But he was like, that's why you get strep throat all the time. You're, you like don't express your needs. You don't say what you need to say. So it's like poison in your throat. Now, do I believe that? For some reason I do, but does it, is there scientific backup for it? No. So anyways, start noticing that and see, also just pay attention. I brought up the swallowing because try to pay attention. If there's a pattern of something that you do in your body, you'd be so surprised. We do stuff over and over, like as a way to cope. It's so interesting. So see if you can notice those patterns and that will tell us more about the story of your emotions. Okay. And be patient. It takes time. If we've been stuffing these down for our whole lives, you know, it's going to take a little time to learn why and to stop doing it. Let's move on to question number two. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This question says, hey, Katie, how do I allow myself to be real in therapy? Good question. Whenever I walk in, I have a hard time sharing how I'm feeling, and I immediately forget what has been on my mind or what has happened that week. I also constantly think that I'm making up my problems and I'm being too dramatic. Oh, interesting. Or her other patients have worse problems. Like she thinks that I don't need therapy anymore and I'm annoying, even though she's never expressed this. I am becoming attached to her because our sessions are really the only thing I look forward to lately. I also am worrying about her leaving me. If she retires or something bad happens to her, what can I do about this? I just don't know why I get all these mental blocks in therapy when she asks a question, I just, I think I just answer from my logical brain and not actually for how I feel because I feel numb so often. It's like I'm trying to say the right thing or do I feel a little bit of emotion or if I feel a little bit of emotion, I mask it. I just don't know how to get around this. Thank you so much. I hope you're doing well. Of course, of course. This is a great question and it's obviously very common. This got a lot of thumbs up, so you're not alone. Um, I have a couple things. Now, First of all, and the thing that I think is always important to acknowledge when we have issues in therapy is that this is just indicative of other things or not other things, other situations in which we're doing the exact same thing. Meaning you're doing this in other relationships. You just haven't realized it yet. And therapy is like shined a big bright light on it. And you're like, how the come I can't even fucking be honest and like tell her that I'm not feeling good. And why do I just like like think I'm making up my problems and that I'm being too dramatic. Like, why am I going into this? Because you've been doing it for years in other ways. Now, my knee jerk reaction is like, hmm, I wonder if we are, if we have a trauma in our past, and this is our fawn response. Remember there's fight, flight, freeze. There's also fawn. Fawn is when we like try to people please a lot in order to not like 
to not be abused again. It's another defense mechanism, essentially. So there could be that. And that could be why you're like, I'm just making this up. I don't want to be too much trouble, you know. Um, But then it also could just be an issue with our own like self-worth and confidence, or maybe it's the firm belief that like, we're just not good enough or no one's ever going to really love us. And I'm very curious about that attachment stuff. And like, if we have an attachment wound again, that would be considered a trauma. Um, Yeah, there's a lot going on here for that. And so I really think the best way to go about it is to tell your therapist, this is happening. Now, I know that might be hard. And we can try to find other ways. I mean, you can write it down and bring it in. If she allows for emails. Now, even if she hasn't told you you could email, it might behoove you to ask if you can and to say something like this, to say, you know, let's say it's me, Katie, and I'm your therapist. You could say like, hey, Katie, I'd really like to email you some stuff because I can never bring it up in therapy and I always forget. Would that be possible? There would be no expectation for you to reply, but I just am afraid that I won't be able to say it in person. That's a great pitch. And as a therapist, I would say 100%, of course, because I don't reply to emails from my patients unless it's scheduling because they should be doing their their work to talk about things in session. Now, if they do email me, I print it out and I bring it into session and I read it and we talk about it. So that's how I would encourage you to try to bring it up. It would be texting, emailing something in between sessions with the knowledge that the therapist will not reply, then they'll just bring it up in session next time. And then, so that's that's really like my best guidance for moving forward because you need to tell them this is happening. However, I also encourage you to, when you do bring this up to say, I'm curious if this is happening in other parts of my life. And maybe even when I just told you like, hey, I think this has probably happened before for you. What, what popped into your head? Like we should explore those relationships. We could ex- we should explore why this is our go-to. Why do we automatically think that we, you know, we're overreacting and that we're just being too dramatic? Like why does our brain go there? When were we told that? Do we feel like that in our other relationships? Like we don't have the right to express upset or to have issues with something. Can we take up space? Do we over-apologize? Like I have a lot of questions about that because I... I think that that might be coming from somewhere. And then also the attachment stuff is important to talk about as well, because it's indicative, again, of things that have happened in our past. This would be like past relationships and with our, usually our parents, but whoever your caregiver was, that's why you're afraid of her leaving. And I'm, I'm curious if someone has left you before, like if a parent has cut you off or if, you know, they, I don't know, maybe your dad just left, you never knew him or your mom, same, you know, the same, but just your mom. Um, yeah. So that's, that's that. And then also, again, like the wanting to say the right thing, like you're trying to say the right thing to me, that is that people pleasing that fawn response. That's just where I think this is coming from and letting them know that this is happening will, will be your best bet to get out of it. Now there was a comment that said, yes, I find myself doing this, even though I know there's no right thing. I did bring it up with my therapist and she thinks it's because I'm was so used. Oh, I'm so used to watching situations. So I don't escalate them or can try and fix them basically the classic childhood trauma. Ha ha. Exactly. But I still find myself over observing any tips for how to lean in. Oh, lean into it all. Hmm. I think part of it is going to be slow and steady. It's almost like exposure therapy and we're going to need resources to feel safe or neutral. Now, I don't know if I, I know I say this on the podcast a lot, but in case this anyone's first time listening, 
When I talk about trauma work, a lot of times people will say you need to find a safe place to work through it. Well, the truth with trauma work is sometimes we need to find neutral because safe makes us feel too vulnerable and it feels in essence then too dangerous. And so we're going to have to find either hoping that your therapist's office can be this neutral space, but we're also just going to need to find some resources to help calm our nervous system down and give us, help us create that space within ourselves. Does that make sense? So it's like, maybe we have uh, like a protector type of person that we visually bring into the room. Like imagine that we had this big dog protecting us or we had, um, let's say our big brother always protect us. Let's say he, we bring him in or I don't know, anything that you can think of. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach or or another creature. Could even be like a fantastical beast, okay? Um, maybe we bring that or like a nurturing part. Like we can bring these resources, like meaning these like images, people, photos, memories into the room to help us. Or, and that's kind of like as we lean into it, right? We're gonna need that support or slash and we have other coping skills like full body shakes, taking breaks, doing some breathing, using uh, the thinking putty or doing some grounding techniques. We can use a lot of our coping skills to help us manage the, usually it's anxiety or just overwhelm that comes up when we start trying to lean into it. And what's preventing you is, and the reason you go back into observing is because it just doesn't feel safe to do it. It's too scary. It's also probably an old pattern that we've just been doing since we were a kid. And the reason that you like watch, you don't want to escalate things. You'd rather be a wallflower and like fawn or people please so that it doesn't get worse. It's protective. So in a way we have to prove to our brain, oh, I don't have to do that anymore, right? Because you learn to do it to protect yourself. So we have to unlearn it. That's why, you know, the safer neutral place, having like people or things we bring in that are, uh, that help us calm and then having coping skills on top of that. That's like, I know that that's not an easy answer. And that kind of, it's like, oh, Katie, could you make it even harder? But it didn't happen overnight. So it's not going to be fixed overnight. It takes, you know, it's going to take time and it takes that support to get us through. So I hope that makes sense. Okay. Now there was another, so as an add-on, I'm usually so glad to meet my therapist that my usually low mood improves on the therapy day. How can I show my therapist my real mood? I asked for an extra session because of how I've been doing lately. And after a positive response, I immediately cheered up and now do not know if I really need it. You do. For context, I did tell my therapist that the issue is that I'm prone both to disconnection from my emotions and minimization. So it Um, It is really, really difficult to convey to my therapist how I'm actually doing because I either don't know or I'm convinced that it's not that bad. Journal. I cannot uh, encourage each and every one of you enough to journal. If you, it doesn't even have to be like, dear diary today, it doesn't have to be that intense. Put the date so that we can at least track, write the date at the top. Give me a couple bullet points. Like I'll, I'll pretend to do my diary today. Okay. For today. Be like, um, Got to sleep in because I worked on the weekend. Did yoga, was really nice. Need a book vacation, been feeling overwhelmed. Got things completed at work, feeling good about that. That would be my diary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I know a lot of times people feel like they need to write more and you totally can. I personally am one of those. Like a, I, I'm a verbal diarrhea person in therapy and therefore I'm a verbal diarrhea person in journaling, but to each their own. Don't feel like it has to make sense. It doesn't have to be sentences. It can just be bullet points. What are the main things that you're thinking, feeling, doing today? Take those little, you know, take those notes. And the thing that's great is you can share it with your therapist if you want, you know, um, either bring your diary to the office, whether it's actual paper or even on your phone or email it to them if they allow, or even just read from it. Um, And it allows not only for them to know how you're truly doing in between sessions, it takes it essentially out of your hands kind of, which is nice. It also helps you be able to see how you're doing, which can be great in now for the minimization and validation helps you kind of like acknowledge that because I've even read some parts of entries back to my patients and said, what would you think if I said this? I don't tell them I'm reading an entry. You would be surprised how many of them are like, oh my God, who wrote that? That's so, that sounds terrible. Or I'll pretend it's from another you know, person or something. Because when it's not us, we're, we're just so much more compassionate. And you know, then I'm always like, well, how come you can't do that for yourself? Right. But journaling can help. And then it also helps for motivation later when you feel maybe stuck or stagnant, you can look back and be like, wow, I've come so far. So that's always great too. Okay. There was another add-on says, I'm not sure if this is sufficiently related to be an add-on, but I'm wondering how I can heal or get over the fact that my therapist used to collude with me in minimizing my problems. Interesting. I find it hard to bring something up because I, I'd have to momentarily convince myself that I wasn't just faking or being weak and that it was a real problem. But then when I finally did say something, it seemed like my therapist didn't care and didn't want to help with that thing. It's years later and still hurts that, um, that my therapist didn't get through to help me. I'm so sorry. To be honest, I don't know if you're still seeing that therapist. I couldn't tell through your question, but I don't think that it's a good fit. We should never feel minimized or put down or not taken seriously by our therapist, period. It's like a non-negotiable for me. I really think that if you can, please find someone else. And getting over it and healing, it'd be part of the work that you do in your with your next therapist. Because essentially what happened is you went in and tried to open up and receive the support that you so desperately needed. And you were kind of told it wasn't a big deal. And like your worst fears were like realize kind of it's super traumatic. And essentially I know it sounds um, maybe it sounds like I'm over, you know, like going in the opposite, like overreacting. But I think that, you know, you need some trauma work around this. We need to heal from what happened. And so that would be the process of getting over it. And, And then the healing could also come from finding a therapist who doesn't minimize, who actually speaks up for you, is there with you, you know, encouraging you along the way, uh, validating your experience, to, uh, not, you know, making sure that they tell you that every way that you feel is okay. And all of that, essentially what we would call, uh, what's the word? It's like, um, I don't know, it's, I forget, uh, unconditional positive regard. I knew it'd come out of there somewhere. It was in my brain somewhere. It's as therapists, we're taught to offer this to people where it's essentially 
unconditionally supporting our patients and being there for them wherever they're at versus judging. That's essentially what it means. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I just thought it'd be a different experience to ask you a question about yourself as you always kindly offer so much help and advice to us. My question is, I know you've mentioned before about you accessing therapy yourself in the past. And I wondered, what have you learned most about yourself in therapy? Great question. Thanks for your videos. They've been really helpful. Of course. Um, I thought about this when I saw this question and was putting it in the doc. It's There's a lot I've learned about myself in therapy. And honestly, even for anybody out there who maybe is just about to wrap up therapy, I feel like there's like these ripple effects of being in therapy for a long time off and on where like I'll have realizations of my own like sans therapist. So don't think that it just ends because therapy's ending. Like I'm still trying to do the same things that I, the homework and stuff that I was supposed to do in therapy. And I think the... There's a couple of big key learnings. One I recently shared in a video that I, it's my anxiety that drives a lot of my behavior and a lot of the like faux control that I try to have, whether it is because like when I was a teen, like I shared in another video, like exercise was like a problem for me when I was a teen. And it was me feeling like other things were out of control and trying to control it. And that would like help manage my anxiety because you get like that runner's high. If anybody doesn't know, I used to run. If you catch me running now, it's because I'm running from something. So please pick me up and save me. But um, yeah, so I used to run as a way to cope and it wasn't very healthy. And I realized that in therapy, but even greater than that was the fact that like my people pleasing behavior was more as a, a way for me to manage the anxiety that I felt. That was a huge, and that was like a recent realization after my therapist, like for years trying to get me to, um, to allow the anxiety to build for not like getting out of someone's way, like in the groceries, like doing things that I would think could hurt someone's feelings and not in a big way. You guys, these are stupid things that are like me over apologizing, like getting out of the way for someone in the grocery store and we're both looking at the same things and apologizing for even being there looking at the same thing. Like just stuff that doesn't make any sense. And she would be like, what, you know, could you not do that? And then tell me what comes up for you? Like all that. So the ripple effects of that are still, I'm still like feeling it and realizing it. But I think the biggest takeaway for me in my therapeutic process was or is the fact that I don't like conflict so much that it makes it difficult for me to express my wants and needs without getting angry. So I've had to find better ways to communicate and it's really hard. And I knew I was like conflict adverse, but I've gotten better. Um, Anyway, it's a work in progress, but that was a big like, oh my God, like a big realization for me. So anyway, those are just some of the things I've learned about myself and things that I still continue to work on and still have like realizations about, um, yeah, therapy is like invaluable. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, I have questions about passive suicidality. I believe that's what it's called, but not fully sure. And what really do you, um, do you do to deal with it? Gotcha. What do you do to deal with it? I was at a point a long time ago that I was done and ready to leave, but I ended up finding out that I was pregnant. And from that point forward, it just wasn't an option anymore. I wasn't going to bring someone into the world only to leave them. My kids are my purpose and give me a reason, but those thoughts have never gone away. And some days they're stronger than others. I hate when they come up and usually tend to distract and avoid them at all costs. That's probably the problem. I usually stay busy and never stop moving. Distraction, distraction, distraction. 
I will say that the thoughts scare me, not so much the dying part, but the fear of hurting and ruining my kids' lives. I'm in therapy and doing trauma work, but it's not something that we've discussed. I'm a little afraid to bring it up and talk about it. What are your thoughts and opinions on this? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions. Now, passive suicidality is important to talk about and bring up in therapy, period. Now, I do want to acknowledge the fact that I know not all therapists are good at their jobs and a lot of them get scared, even the mention of suicidal thoughts and they want to hospitalize us. And so it's really important that you talk to your therapist about this before you reveal anything. Now, they're going to kind of guess that it's coming, but we're still not telling them anything. They're looking to know if we have a plan and the means to do it and the threat is imminent, meaning we're like going to take our life tomorrow. They're looking for that stuff. So when you bring this up, say something to the the effect of, you know, I was uh, even just use me as an excuse. Be like, I was listening to this therapist and someone was talking about what they called passive suicidality, like the thoughts come they're not going to do it. And then they go. And part of me resonated with that, you know, but, but again, before you even do this, you'd say something to the effect of, you know, maybe you could say, I heard about this thing called passive suicidality. And someone had asked this question and said they got hospitalized. And what are your, what do you have to do? Like, what are the laws or the rules that you abide by when it comes to things like suicide? Can ask straight up. They have to tell you. They also probably already, if they're like doing what they're supposed to do, should have given you like, forms that explain this prior to your first appointment or at your first appointment. It's kind of part of like your informed consent, your confidentiality. And there's all these documents as a therapist that we have to share with you, talk you through and have you sign. Um, ask about it. Hopefully their their response is a very real and relatable one where they're like, well, it depends. You know, if, if you if a threat is imminent, if you're going to do something or you have the means or I'm really worried about your safety, then I would have to put you in the hospital. But, you know, that would be a last resort. Cause this is how I talk to my patients about it. It's a last resort. There'd be a lot of steps before that. I would never just spring it on you. We would be talking about it over and over. We'd be doing check-ins and things prior to that. So that's how I talk about it. So hopefully they say that. And I think... It's important to bring up because we never worked on it, right? We just, you just got pregnant. That doesn't fix anything. That's like my eating disorder patients who stop using their eating disorder behavior when they find out they're pregnant. And then ta-da, the baby's born. And it's not very long after where we start engaging again. And they'll tell me when they're pregnant and stuff or breastfeeding or whatever, they're like, it's gone. I don't have an eating disorder anymore. And I'm like, well, we never really got rid of it. So pregnancy doesn't get rid of that. And it didn't get rid of it for you either. You just have a reason to live now, which doesn't mean that the reasons for your passive suicidal thoughts is gone. Now, suicidality can come from deeply rooted depression. It can also come from a difficulty with like future hope, difficulty seeing the future, difficulty imagining ourselves in the future, um, feeling like nothing's ever going to get better, right? That darkness and that weight can be really heavy and it can be really hard to see out of it. Now, the answer could be, uh, you know, medication. Now, I know there was a study, I'll talk about this on some other social, probably even before this podcast comes out, but there was a recent study talking about how SSRIs don't always work or don't work for serotonin. I have to con complete, I haven't finished the whole article. I'm only like halfway through um, and people are jumping to conclusions about that. So I have a lot, lot to say, but anyways, um, medication still helps tons and tons of people. So medication could be helpful. Um, also, you might want to, because you're doing trauma work. So I might, I think it might be part of that too. I wouldn't be surprised if part of that passive suicidality is tied to the shame 
and trauma, thinking something's wrong with us or we're broken in some way or the world's better off without us, that can come along with that shame that is built from trauma. And so as you work to process through that, we might see the suicidal thoughts lift. Um, but yeah, ask your therapist what what their laws and regulations rules are about suicidal stuff when they would send someone to the hospital. You can just say, you know, it's okay to fib a little to get that information. It's important. You can say like, I watched a documentary, or I heard a podcast and they were talking about it and I don't even know what your policies are. How does that work for you? It's okay to ask those questions. And then we share what it's like. You know, I don't have any plans to do it, um, but the thoughts come and I had them before I was pregnant, you know, and it's been around for a long time. I think it could be tied to my trauma. It could be depression, could be both. And we can find some tools and ways to manage I want you to know that those thoughts are common and they can go away. They just exist for a reason and we have to figure out what that reason is and work on that reason. Meaning if it is trauma-based, we process and heal from that trauma. If the um, it's more out of our depression, then we need to focus in on our depressive thoughts and we need to maybe use some CBT or other therapeutic techniques to kind of pay attention to those thoughts, argue back with our bridge statements and pull ourselves out little by little. But either way, your therapist is more than, I'm sure, especially being a trauma therapist, they're going to be more than adequate at helping you with that. There was a comment that says, to add on to this, I have a very similar situation and I am unsure of how to be happy doing anything for myself to be happy. Okay. I've spent a long time only living for my child. Oh, interesting. And have completely lost any other hobbies or activities for myself. Okay. One of the best tools for things like this is what is known as behavioral activation. I talked about it on TikTok. I don't know if anybody follows me on TikTok, but I talked about it over there. Behavioral activation is by and large one of the best treatments for depression without medication. And what behavioral activation is, is essentially, and I know you're all going to be like, ah, fuck Katie, that's horrible. Forcing ourselves to do the things we used to love to do. Now, do we have to go hog wild and do the thing for like hours? No. But let's say our old hobby used to be that I love to um, collage or color. I want you to purchase a couple items. Or if you have your old stuff, dig it out. Don't spend a, a shitload of money. Make this you know very budget friendly, especially because everything's expensive right now. Get yourself a couple of things and start doing it five, 10 minutes at a time. Or let's say you used to love to put puzzles together. Start working on a puzzle. Set aside a little space in your apartment or your home where you can work on it. And just slowly but surely work on it and set a timer, five, 10 minutes a day. Or let's say your hobby used to be to cook for people. Could we plan every month to do one? You know, I mean, I know it's hard and the the motivation to do it is what usually stops us. But if we know we only have to do it for five to 10 minutes, be like, this is my therapy homework. It's just five or 10 minutes. By the time, this is what I say to myself, at least. I'm like, by the time you bitch and moan about it, Katie, it'll be over, right? If I'd just gotten started, it'd already be done. Get up, do it. Just that five or 10 minutes can completely change your life. I know. It fucking sucks. It's hard to get started. But once you do, it's like a snowball. Like it collects, it gets bigger and bigger and starts picking up speed. And before you know it, we're able to enjoy the things we used to enjoy and we can feel great. I'm telling you. So give it a try. I know it's rough, but it's helpful and it really, really works. Okay, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, why can't I allow myself to be happy? Interesting. I have so much to say about this. I want to enjoy my life, but enjoying it feels wrong. 
It's not necessarily that I feel like I don't deserve to be happy, but I just can't let myself live the life I want to live. And I constantly sabotage my happiness. Okay. Happiness can be really scary. Here's why. Because we grew up maybe in a household or our whole life, things have just been a shit show, right? We go from trauma to stress, to overwhelm, to hypervigilance, to always feeling unsafe and happiness. What? We don't even know her. She hasn't been part of our life at all. So it's really foreign. It's really uncomfortable. Even the thought of allowing ourselves to be happy makes us want to run in the other direction. That is very, very common. Another common reason and very closely related to that is if we're happy, we let our guard down and then we're more vulnerable to getting hurt. So a lot of my, especially my trauma patients, uh, that there's nothing worse. Why would I want to potentially put myself in a more vulnerable position? I wouldn't, right? And so we don't allow for it. So that's the two most common. Now here comes in in a close third. Oh, shame. You're the worst. Shame makes us believe, if you don't know, shame makes us believe that something's wrong with us. Like we're inherently broken in some way. And it's often attached to trauma, but it can be attached to a lot of people can feel shame. But I feel like if we really think about it, it all tracks back to some kind of trauma, whether it was bullying or emotional abuse or something, right? So shame tells us that we something's wrong with us. And in essence, we don't deserve good things, right? We don't deserve to feel happy. We don't deserve to enjoy life. That's usually where this comes from. Now, I'm not sure where it comes from for you, but I'm just giving you some ideas to get you started because I think it's one of those. And that's why enjoying it feels wrong. And the best way out of this is to acknowledge where it's coming from for you and work to process through that. So let's say the answer is, I feel a lot of shame about who I am or, you know, because of the emotional abuse I sustained. Well, we're going to want to find a trauma specialist and start doing that work. We might want to do some inner child work. I have an inner child workshop I'm launching. Um, It'll probably be the Friday tomorrow after this goes live, I think, because I'm about two weeks ahead. Um, Join that. And it's, it'll be available after the fact too. It's going to be live streamed so you can ask questions live, but then it'll be on the 12th and the 19th, I believe from one to 3 p.m. Uh, Central Standard Time. And it's going to be two Fridays in a row. And you can also, if you can't join it live, you can go after the fact and buy it because we're going to record it too. So that could be something that could be helpful for you too. It's uh, $60 if you want to join live. I think it's 50 after the fact. Again, because the live, you get like Q&A and all the stuff and we can make sure that we're all understanding and moving along. But whatever works with your budget. So I think, you know, therapy, it could also, and just as a random thought too, could be part of depression. I don't know if you have other symptoms of depression, meaning like you don't enjoy the things you used to enjoy. Is sleep, has your sleep changed, your appetite changed? Do we feel down most days? Has it been going on for like most days for at least the next or the last two weeks? You know, have we had thoughts of suicide? Like what's what's happening? You know, that could be it too. But those are, and the sabotage, I, I think just comes from that belief that we don't deserve it, which I think is a trauma response. Now there was a comment on this as, as an add-on, why have I come to believe that happiness is fake? I can't even imagine a situation in which I would feel happy, yet I feel so guilty about it. I have so many opportunities and here I am not happy and just feel numb. I have anxiety and depression, so it's like nothing matters, but everything does all at the same time. I'm too scared to take a step into getting better or trying to make myself happy. It's like I want to have a mental illness. 
or I want to have my mental illnesses. Like maybe finally my family will see the pain that I'm in. Interesting. Instead of just putting expectations on me, hmm, I can use my mental illnesses as an excuse for not progressing forward too. I just don't know how to want to get better with an eating disorder. And I don't know how to not feel depressed and stuck and unloved and slash neglected. I feel so dramatic for even adding this on here. You aren't at all, but I hope it brings some validation and comfort for those who relate to this. How can I start changing? Bridge statements are so hard. Bridge statements aren't going to work for all of us. Again, I offer a bunch of different random tools and techniques. Pick what you, you know, it's like a buffet, like a, a therapeutic buffet. Take what you want, leave the rest. Now, okay. First question, why have I come to believe that happiness is fake? And you kind of answer it for yourself. You say, I can't even imagine a situation in which I would feel happy. And you mention how your family, you know, you want them to see that the, the pain that you're in and putting expectations on you. I think there's some kind of abuse and trauma in your past. And I think because again, you've never probably experienced happiness growing up. All you don't know her. She hasn't been around. It seems unrealistic. Seems phony. We don't have any experiences to lean on where we're like, oh, that's what it is, or that's how it felt, or oh, that's what they meant. You know, we don't have it. That's okay. I think I would challenge you to instead of like believing, saying that you believe that happiness is fake, what if we reframe that and say, you know, happiness is really foreign to me, so much so that I don't recognize it. Would that work? Does that not feel maybe quite as real. I don't know. I just kind of want to change that a little bit for you to kind of give you an option and a way out of it from that belief going back and forth. Um, And the fact that you feel guilty about it, it sounds to me, okay, so there's just a lot going on in this question. Um, There, honestly, inner child work could really help for you and trauma work and therapy, like in general. I don't know what happened in your family of origin, but it sounds like there's a lot of minimization, invalidation, shaming, blaming, uh, probably a lot of emotional abuse, potentially other types of abuse. But this sounds very emotional abuse, feeling like, you know, nothing matters and it matters and there's all these opportunities. Things are good for me. What, blah, here I am, blah, all the like blame and the guilt that you're taking on for, for honestly no reason, but there's a reason there, right? And I think the reason is that you were always blamed for everything or that your family, you know, never, like if we always felt like the black sheep in our family, like no one ever got me. I never really fit in. I was never really part of it. That's trauma. Hello. I know not everybody wants to call it that. Even members of my own team that I work with are like, I haven't been traumatized. And they talk about these horrible things that happen. I'm like, well, that's trauma. They're like, give it a different name. And I'm like, an overwhelming experience that I wasn't able to process at the time. We can call it that too. I think that happened to you growing up. And the fact that you're wanting their validation, you want them to see the pain that you're in, tells me that there was a neglect. Like no one was watching you. No one came to your aid. I I wonder about attachment if you have some issues with that as well as a result, because that need does not make you a bad person. That's a human need that needing that, that comfort and that acceptance. It's key there. Like when I was doing uh, my research and looking through other books for the inner child workshop, some of those good mother, good father messages are things like, I see you. I'm glad that you're here. You are important. I love you. Like those are all very important things for us to hear and feel from our parents. I don't know if you got that. 
And that inner child work could be really beneficial. Okay, sorry. I feel like I'm getting off topic. Let me just make sure. Um, and oh, and I just don't know how to want to get better with my eating disorder. Of course not, because it's still serving a purpose. Remember, eating disorders aren't about the fucking food. It's about what it's helping us cope with. And I think it's helping you cope with this like guilt and neglect and trauma. It's helping you numb out and focus on that. That's why you don't want to get better. It's okay. I see that all the time with my patients. It doesn't mean that you can't get better. It just means we're not quite there yet because it's still serving its purpose. And we might have to rethink our relationships with your family. Like, how is that going to look? Like, what can we, what would maybe be a healthier interaction? Because it sounds like right now, or maybe being in too close of contact with them is actually re-traumatizing and more harmful for you. Um so yeah, how do we start changing? <laughs> Back to the question. Sorry, I really got off topic. I think how do we start changing is setting up boundaries and maybe limiting contact with our family a little bit. So it gives us space from, you know, these rehashes. Um, if you can join the inner child workshop, I'd encourage you to, or even just doing, um, when I, I'm trying to think of if what the best book is. I, I'm going to have some videos that come out about inner child work and I'd encourage you to do the homework on those videos. That'll be really helpful. Um, I have my video about childhood emotional neglect. I encourage you to check that out. There's a book that I love that's called The Emotionally Unavailable Mother. And it's by, I think her name is Lori. It's blue. It's in my Amazon shop. So you can go to amazon.com forward slash Katie Morton forward slash shop. Oh no, I think it's shop and then Katie Morton shop forward slash. It's anyway, it's in the description. You can get it there. Um, Yeah. It'll get better. Okay. One thing at a time. We'll get you out of this. Don't worry. I think that'll be really healing. Okay. Next add-on says, exactly. I realized I was constantly sabotaging myself so that I stay stuck in my situation and not to have to make any decisions and fully live my life. This is interesting. I'm past my mid-20s. I still live at home and am financially dependent on my parents because I keep relapsing. I suffer from anorexia and cannot be trusted on my own. I've read recently that some psychologists call that subtle suicide. We'll talk about this. Uh, says socially killing yourself or being so high on meds that you basically don't live or requiring so much support that you don't have to make decisions or letting the complications of your illness kill you, etc. I was wondering if you've had any thoughts on this concept and also if you could explain how it differs from passive suicidality or is it just that the thoughts are unconscious? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts and there's a ton of people who believe and I I think for a period of time I might have even believed it too that like eating disorders are like slow or subtle suicide. I don't really think that's the case. I think it's again it's a coping skill cuz also you have to think of suicide in that way too. Suicidal thoughts exist because we don't know another way out at the time. No one has supported us or helped us. We're struggling to see any hope or any future for us. What are we going to do? Right? Our brain's just looking for a way out. And people who can't really understand that can call certain, well, eating disorders are physically dangerous. We know that. But I don't think the goal is death. I think the goal is to cope and we don't have any other resources. We feel very, I don't know, not just without, but like inept at being able to deal with what's happened or happening to us. So I don't really think, I don't agree. Okay. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about the sabotaging yourself so you stay stuck in your situation. And I'm really interested. So I had a patient like this years ago, and this might be why this like piqued my interest. But for her, the reason that she was doing this was actually because she was emotionally neglected as a kid. And this allowed her to get that attention that she so desperately needed. 
I don't know if that rings true for you. It could also be this uh, this intense fear of failure. I don't think we talk about fear of failure enough and how like kind of motivating in the wrong way that can be to us. It can also motivate people in the right way, but most of the time it's like sabotage because it kind of reminds me. So I love the show, The Office. It kind of reminds me when Andy Bernard is like, Andy Bernard doesn't lose competitions. He withdraws because they're unfair or, or he wins them or he withdraws because they're unfair. And that's kind of, you know, it's like that fear of failure. Like we either withdraw because it's unfair or we win. So um, anyways, I think that we can be so scared or we can be so scared about being on our own and failing, or we can have such a, such a lack of self-confidence and self-worth that we don't want to give ourselves the opportunity to, to do it on our own. We could need their love and attention so much. And we think this is the only way we're going to get it. I've had a lot of patients over the years, especially my eating disorder patients who feel like if they're not sick, no one will give them that attention because they were emotionally neglected as a kid or abused in some other way. Um, or it's just like a, again, that self-worth thinking like the only reason someone would want to be around me is because I need them there. I have to have them there or I will die. It can even be a manipulation. That's kind of like what that is, is kind of a form of manipulation. I'm not saying that as like a put down, we all do things to manipulate others to get our needs met. But a lot of my BPD patients or borderline personality disorder patients will keep themselves ill to stay in therapy or to keep people in relationships with them. And it's done because we want them around. We fear abandonment so intensely. So I guess my question is kind of back to you is like, where do you think this comes from? I don't think this is subtle suicide or passive suicidality. I think this is the only way you know how to get your needs met. And so we have to find another way. What I would honestly challenge you to do is to go into treatment for your eating disorder, if that's available to you through insurance or, um, you know, getting on the list or however it works where you're at, getting into treatment and stepping down to like, we had, you know, these homes where the girls would live. I mean, girls, they were adults, they're women, uh, where the women would live as like, almost like a, you know, they talk about like halfway houses or like recovery houses for addicts. It was the same for eating disorders. It was like, you know, partial treatment. There was staff there to help, but they were pretty much on their own to like get groceries. And it was a nice step down to try to make your own meals and make your own choices. And it, it is, it's a slow way for you to get used to doing things on your own and proving to yourself that you can. And that building that confidence through, you know, we would call it, uh, what is the DBT term? It's like uh, building mastery. It's like you're getting to build mastery because I know you can do it. I know you can get better. I know you can take care of yourself and you can pay your own bills and you can keep a job. I know you can. I just want you to know that you can. And I think part of that is going to be through, you know, acknowledging why you're doing this. Like what, what purpose does this serve? And this is not a judgment on you. This is so common. This is just trying to better understand our behavior, right? We do things. We just have to consider why we do things. That's how we learn and that's how we get better. I'd put your effort into that, okay? Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. And I hope that my question makes sense. They usually do. I've been going to therapy for about five months now and have finally slowly managed to be able to get to the point where I can feel more relaxed and able to begin to process my traumas. Yay. Um, says childhood sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical abuse, just to name a few, without complete avoidance. Amazing. Along this healing journey, I've been reading more about therapy practices and have come to the realization that my therapist would have been the same, oh, would have the same unconditional positive regard 
I'll talk about that. For my abusers, if any of them had been the one who was in therapy. Hmm. We'll talk about that. Since realizing this, I haven't been able to shake off this unease. I know things aren't black and white, and it's not that it's about my current therapist. It's the thought that any person that could be trying to trust and discuss my deepest, darkest secrets with could, in fact, be at some point supporting a person who caused so much damage in my life and comforting them. I hope this makes sense and hasn't triggered anyone. I will probably bring this up with my therapist at some point as well. I would encourage you to. She is well aware of my overthinking and potential autism, which makes it harder for me to process things. Thank you for all that you do. It's watching your videos that made me take the leap and finally go to therapy to admit to myself that I had traumas. I'm so proud of you and I'm glad that I could be a helpful resource. Now, okay, unconditional positive regard means we don't judge. It's just like it sounds. It's unconditional positive regard. We regard you in a positive way unconditionally because you're our patient and us judging is only going to make things worse for you. It's part of what we're trained to do. A lot of people have a tough time with that and not understanding how, you know, therapists can be so kind to people who are evil and like the people who work like in the... um the jail system and they'll talk to people who've murdered others and, you know, they can offer that to them. And that's really hard people to understand. But here's the big difference. Now, unconditional positive regard means I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. That does not mean I'm going to condone harmful, abusive behavior ever. That's not what a therapist does. Unconditional positive regard is just like, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to hear you out. But if if I had a patient, I haven't had a patient who was an abuser yet that I know of. If I had a patient, though, that came into my office and was talking about these horrible things that they'd done in their past, I would hear them out and I would say, yeah, those things weren't. I would, again, validate their experience. I mean, for them to come to therapy first is like huge because those people, not to say like, throwing all lumping all abusers into the same category because that's not true. But the majority of people who abuse others are either what we'd call antisocial personality, people with antisocial personality disorder, narcissists. um, Yeah, someone like that, someone who doesn't have empathy for other people and can do harm to others or people who have addictions, right? A lot of people will hurt others when they're high or drunk or something. So they don't tend to get help as often as the ones who were harmed by them, but I still would not, I wouldn't support that behavior. I would never tell them it was okay. It's not the same. Unconditional positive regard doesn't mean condoning any and everything that someone does. I mean, I've even told some of my patients over the years, this isn't the same thing, but like I had a patient who was in a relationship and had said some of the things they'd said to their partner. And I was like, you realize that's, that's kind of like emotional abuse, what, what you've said, you Imagine that it was the reverse. You know, you have to challenge them. Therapists are supposed to push you to be better, challenge you to improve your relationship with yourself and others. There's not a bone in my body that would ever support someone hurting someone else. And if they were coming to therapy, I would assume it was because they had their own guilt and struggles with it. Like I have had patients who have addiction in the past who like hated things they did, like stole from their parents and you know, uh, marriages that ended and things like that. And what I work with them on is actually more about the like recovery process for them and then making amends where it's appropriate. And it's, it's kind of, you know, even think of like AA and how you're supposed to, you make your list and then you make amends. So it's that same kind of process. So I bring it up with your therapist, allow her to explain because it's not, it's not the same. 
we wouldn't validate someone abusing someone else. I know it's kind of hard to like understand that, but it's more about just hearing your patient out, giving them the benefit of the doubt, asking questions where you can and supporting positive change. That's really what it's about. Not about condoning abusive behavior. That would never, that could not. I even, I have some, um, friends of mine, some colleagues who work exclusively with people who abused others and stuff like that. And I don't know how they do it. I don't think I have a stomach for it. It'd be really hard for me to like exclusively do that. But they find it to be incredibly healing and very fulfilling because they get to, you know, change people's lives. So again, they're not condoning it. They're trying to help change behavior. Okay. I hope that that helps. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hey, Katie, is it normal to feel childlike in therapy? Yep, it can be. And do therapists encourage this? Mm, Not really, but we'll talk about it. I don't see my therapist as a caregiver. I'm still not 100% comfortable with my therapist yet, but each time in therapy, I feel myself kind of switch and I stop functioning as an adult. Instead, I watch myself do and say things I'm often highly embarrassed about afterward. I struggle with dissociation. Mm. So maybe it's just some form of depersonalization, but my therapist doesn't seem bothered. And when I'm more childlike, she brings out things that are normally used in children's therapy, like card games, figurines, bubbles, puzzles. I get all excited, which again, so embarrassing, but I suppose it's better than me completely shutting down. What on earth is going on here? Now there was an add-on question. They said, and I want to add on to this scenario listed above, does that indicate DID, which is otherwise known as dissociative identity disorder, or used to be called multiple personality disorder. Although I was completely comfortable with my therapist at the time and only acted like this in therapy. Okay. So a lot of thoughts. Yes, it could be DID. It is incredibly common for those of us who have multiple personalities or multiple alters as they kind of prefer it to be called to have a more protective version of ourselves. Now, not everyone does, but this is incredibly common for us at least to have like a protector, one that's like gruff and rough and like keeps us safe, right? And you can see why that would be important. So there's that. Also, it's incredibly common for us to have a child version of us when the abuse or neglect or whatever trauma happened. And it's almost like our inner child speaking through us in a lot of ways. And it can be incredibly embarrassing because we act like a child, even though we're a full-fledged adult. So yes, it definitely could be a DID, especially since you feel that switch. So I would tell your therapist, I would talk about it. And that there is a reason that they're encouraging it, not really encouraging it. That's not the right word. Actually, I wouldn't really encourage it, but you, you're supportive of it as a means to actually do that probably like inner child work because you know the goal of um, working with someone with DID isn't we used to think and this can be for some people but we used to think it was the merging of all of the personalities back into one so that essentially we don't have the other alters anymore not everybody wants that goal a lot of people will miss their alters and and feel like they're just a separate part of themselves and they like it like that and you know so the better thing to do is to get them to work together so it's it's getting them to work in tandem and not like fight against each other so that we don't switch unexpectedly and say and do things we're embarrassed about. It's it's not just like having more control over them, but using them to our benefit, not to our detriment. Okay. So yes, it could be that. But the feeling more childlike in therapy without this like switch and in like acting in a very childlike way, 
being childlike in therapy can happen for a lot of reasons. We can uh, speak in childlike ways. I've had people online, even who I know are adults, uh, t- tweet at me or leave comments in very childlike language on purpose. Meaning like, it's not just like a misspelling. It's like the whole thing is written in very childlike language and not due to obviously to any kind of developmental disorder or difficulty, you know, like a lower education, nothing like that. It's done because I'm a therapist and because they're asking a therapeutic question. Okay. Being childlike like that can be, can happen for many reasons. Number one, that inner child work that I've been talking about off and on, it can be that age of us that is like revealing itself because we need to get back in touch with him or her. We need to like engage in that conversation. And that's really the wounded part of us. And so we can find ourselves acting like that as a way, because our essentially our brain's like, hey, we need to fix this part of ourselves at this age. And we can engage that way. Number two, another reason could be developmentally arrested, meaning that we never really emotionally develop past the age of the abuse possibly. And I don't mean that as any judgment. It's okay. A lot of us can feel like that and can feel like we never really move past that time period because we weren't able to process it. And so our brain's almost like holding us there, trying to get us, you know, to work on it so we can move forward. So that's very common too. But the fact that this is just in therapy makes me think that's not it, but I just want to talk this all the way out. So that's another reason. Then the third, and what I think is probably the most common, because I've had a lot of patients act in childlike ways as well. I think it's more because of attachment and seeing the therapist more like a parent instead of uh, an equal and like a guide, you know, because a therapist really, I know people like to put them on pedestals. We're no different than you. We just have a set of tools and we're trying to work with you so that we can utilize with your experience and our expertise, you know, we can make things better for you. So we're not a parent. We're not above you. We're right there with you in the trenches, right? But it can feel like they're a parent. I'd be interested if you act childlike in any other scenarios, like if you go to see the doctor or if you interact with like a superior at work, is it anything to do with that? That could be something to think about. Could be, maybe not. But that's another reason that people can act childlike in therapy because the, you know, the attachment stuff, we can think that our parent, our teacher is our, or our teacher, our therapist is our parent or our caregiver and we can get attached and we can start acting in childlike ways, wanting them to fill that role. Um, there's a lot of different reasons. It's very common. There's nothing weird about it. That's why your therapist, you know, is, is like allowing for it. I would be interested, um, again, I think this is like the dissociation. I think this is part of the DID. Um, but do you have any memory? Because you said you kind of get embarrassed. So if you have memory, it might not be DID, it, but it still sounds like it to me, like a different alter. But I would talk to your therapist about it. Let them know, like you're noticing this. Maybe you can, you know, write an email or let them talk to them about it to get their take because there's, they're going to have some questions just like I do to figure out what it is. But again, nothing's wrong with you. It's okay. It's very normal. We just have to figure out what the cause is so we can, we can work through it. Okay. Now let's move on to question number eight. We have nine questions this week. Question number eight says, Hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. So my question is how much self-disclosure from a therapist is normal? Good question. My therapist talks sometimes in detail, sometimes not about her own life and just Oh, and not about her own life in just about every session. Oh, sorry, I'm reading this wrong, you guys. Let me start over. It says, my therapist talks sometimes in detail, sometimes not about her own life in just about every session. 
I don't know why that was hard for me. She's talked about her traumas, abusive people in her life that she cut out and about stuff that's stressing her out. Like as an example, she had to go to Seattle for her adult daughter's surgery last week and it would be stressful and she had to take care of her daughter's kids and lots of stuff. She also tends to get derailed and reminded of something in her life when I talk about my own issues. As an example, she will talk about her husband quite a bit and her kids. Mm -mm, This is so wrong. A lot of it has to be honest, nothing really to do with my, oh, if a lot of it, I have to be honest, has nothing really to do with my healing, I don't think. And perhaps she's doing it to build trust or to make me feel understood in terms of trauma. But I won't lie, I do get slightly irritated in some of our sessions due to her talking quite a bit about herself and cutting me off. I was curious how much self-disclosure is normal in therapy. Thanks. Of course, um, this is wrong and bad, and I really think you need to see another therapist. That's just straight into the point. This is way too much. My mom had a therapist like this. And I was like, you got to stop seeing her because it stressed my mom out. <laughs> I was like, you shouldn't be going to therapy and feeling worse or having them derail you. Now, someone left a comment below this that I absolutely loved. You guys are just the best with your comments and you just share in your experiences and expertise. It's beautiful. I love it. And they were correct. They said therapy should be 98% about you. And that is true. That's like almost the perfect percentage that I would say as well. Disclosure from a therapist only serves one purpose to help you. Well, I guess maybe two to help you know that they get it. So it can be so you understand they can empathize with you. They've been there before too, or to help, uh, to like help highlight like a, a resource or a way out or to like give hope to something. I think those are really the only two reasons, or maybe I guess you could say three would be like to help you understand something like they might tell a story to help showcase a certain thing does that make sense those would be the only reasons and the the only reason i've ever really self-disclosed was to help a patient know that i i could i feel for them because i understand i've been there too not that my my experience is the same but like uh I think an example i've given in the past probably but i had a patient who'd lost a parent and i was like oh i have two and i'm so sorry about that I didn't share which parent. I didn't talk about when it happened. I didn't share because it's their time. It's not about me. You know what's about me? My fucking therapy session, not theirs. It's rude. It's a, it's your therapist needs therapy is what it is. And it's coming into yours. And that's why you got to see someone else. That's too much, too much disclosure. And that's why, like the person said in that beautiful comment, it's 98% about you. The fact that you get talked over, you know, way too much about her already. Like, honestly, most of my patients, I mean, before now I'm online, so things are a little different. And it's part of the reason why, like when I left California, I let go of my private practice. Um, It was hard, but also kind of necessary. I don't know. I've had a lot of thoughts about whether I can ethically start up a practice again at this point. I mean, you know, I don't share a ton about myself, but I share some and it's complicated, right? Because I truly don't want my patients to know much about me because it's not about me. And it's not about privacy either. It's about the fact that this time each week is yours, 100%. And I might share a little tidbit because I think it's going to help you, not me. It's not about me. I go to my own therapy for it to be about me. You go to yours for it to be about you. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that therapist sounds terrible. And I encourage you to see somebody different. So self-disclosure, that's way too much. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. Final question says, hi, Katie, how can one best ensure that while recovering from one eating disorder, one doesn't slip into another? For an example, from anorexia to BED, which stands for binge eating disorder or bulimia. Okay, let's get into this. This is clear. (laughs) I don't mean to giggle, but sometimes 
I think it's just because eating disorders are my, it's my shtick. And whenever I hear questions like this, I'm like, Ooh, your eating disorder is loud. And it is telling you, if you stop doing this, you're going to swing into something crazy on the other side. And it's going to get worse. Anorexia loves to tell us that when we stop like listening to it, we're just going to blow up. We're going to get huge. It tries to tell you that it's all fucking bullshit. Eating disorders lie. Don't listen to them for a second. They always tell you it's not good enough. Things are always going to get worse without it. Like scrapes along the walls trying to hold on for dear life. So how can you best ensure that you don't switch from one to the other? Get proper treatment. Figure out where it's coming from and really work at the root. The reason eating disorders hang around is because they still serve a purpose. That's why they're chameleons. That's why a treatment, I have patients who are bulimic who turn into binge eaters and then go back, you know, anorexics turn into bulimics. It, we swip, swap, swip, swap not because we want to, but because it still serves its purpose and we're not, we haven't processed what was happening or the reason that it exists. And so it changes so it can still be there for us. So it's really not about like, it's not about the fucking food, right? That's, I feel like I keep saying it. It's not about the food. It's about what purpose the eating disorder serves. And as long as we focus on that and do the work to heal, whether that healing means, you know, trauma processing, which I know is exhausting and hard, but if it's trauma processing, or let's say it's, uh, you know, part of our people pleasing and our, our manipulation, our need to control things, like wherever it comes from, we need to be able to acknowledge that and, and work through that and work to change this pattern of behavior. Then the eating disorder doesn't serve a purpose and it's not going to shapeshift because it won't be there anymore. Does that make sense? I hope so. It's just, it, I don't, I don't mean to laugh at the question. It's not funny. It's just the eating disorder therapist in me is like, oh, this, your eating disorder wrote this question. Now there was another comment on this says, and could you talk about being at a higher normal weight or being overweight in the context of eating disorders? Yes, of course. Um, I feel like it's not as often talked about and not getting the diagnosis kind of triggered me because I thought I was, oh, and getting the diagnosis kind of triggered me because I thought I wasn't ill enough to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I was not even close to being underweight. Eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. I know the media likes to portray it as only underweight, but binge eating disorder is actually the most common eating disorder out there. I don't know if people know that, but yes, it is. And people who are, you know, overweight, that's it's very common because binge eating, if you don't know, binge eating disorders, when we eat more than a normal amount of food in a short period of time, we don't do any compensatory behavior. So you know, we're overeating and we're not doing anything and we're going to gain weight. That's just kind of part of like the way that anorexia, if we're eating less than our body needs, we're going to lose weight. So yes, a lot of people, actually most people with eating disorders have a higher body weight, just statistically speaking, that's it. And luckily for us, they've gotten better when it comes to like the DSM and the ICD-11 and all these different, those are just uh, diagnostic manuals that we use in the States and other parts of the world for uh, insurance and criteria than like diagnosing. So they have gotten better at removing criteria that are based specifically on weight or like losing your period used to be part of the anorexia diagnosis. I was like, hello, men have eating disorders too. That's so stupid, but they've gotten better at that stuff. And so I just want you all to know that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. Some of my patients I've seen over the years who were arguably having or not I don't even know how to say this. It's like they were having the most physical symptoms of it, meaning the most detrimental physical ailments due to their eating disorder. And if you saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't even know. 
like quote unquote normal weight, right? So don't think that weight actually has anything to do with an eating disorder. It's more about our thoughts and actions around food and spending most, like taking up most of our brain space, right? It's almost like we can't focus on anything else because all we think about is food, eating it, not eating it, whatever, doing something to get rid of it or to quote unquote earn it or whatever. Um, Yes. So I'm glad you were able to get the diagnosis. I'm sorry that that was triggering, but that just goes to show you that it doesn't really matter about our weight. It's it's more about our behaviors and our thoughts around food. Okay? I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for leaving your comments and your questions. It really, really helps. You all take care, do your homework, and I'll see you next week. Bye.